The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, in Luke chapter 1, we're looking at the experience of Mary being brought into contact with Gabriel and hearing the news. She's about to be a mama. Now, if you just think for a minute, you're a young teenage gal. You've been betrothed to a man. You're not married. You're a virgin. And this being approaches you and lets you know that you're going to be pregnant. And by the way, it's going to be the Son of God. Can you imagine what she had to process in that brief time? Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 35 In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The story is one of the most beautiful, tender stories in all of Scripture. And we need to read it with awe and gratitude and praise. One of the most important things that Gabriel says in his announcement to, about the birth of Jesus is really the very last thing that he says to Mary. Mary has just asked the question, look, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And so he explains to her how the Holy Spirit will come upon her and everything that will happen. And in her perplexity, in her confusion, then Gabriel adds in Luke 1:37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing at all. Those words are appropriate at the start of the Christmas story for us as well as the entire gospel. In fact, they're appropriate for the, for the entire gospel and Christianity because what we begin to learn in this situation is literally nothing is impossible with God. Now, there are four impossibilities that I want to address here as we begin. Four things that arise from this confrontation that are impossible. Mary needed to hear these words, which is why Gabriel spoke them, because she was being asked to believe something that, from the human perspective, is utterly impossible. Now, I'm in no way equating your life with Mary. But as you sit here this morning, what is impossible in your life? What is there in your life that seems completely impossible today? 
the four things that Mary had to deal with, first of all, the virgin birth. Unlike Elizabeth, who was old and barren, who nevertheless had a husband, Mary was unmarried, and as she has already testified, she was a virgin. She was being asked to believe something that she could conceive without a man. The secular mind for generations has struggled to get their head around this, and literally you cannot understand it apart from the Holy Spirit. And then there's the incarnation. Involved also with this and far more overwhelming is this incarnation. And the incarnation means that God was to become a man, which the angel indicated when he referred to the one who was to be born as the Holy One or the Son of God. These terms could not be used of mere mortal men. What an impossibility this was. It seems as impossible to the Jew as to anybody, but it was particularly impossible to the Greeks whom the message would reach very shortly. You see, Greek philosophy, the principle that most distinguishes between God and man was that God was a spirit while man was both spirit and flesh. And in their minds, spirit was good, but flesh was evil. For the Greek thinkers, this dichotomy explained how humans can aspire to noble thoughts and try to achieve great things, but yet always fall short. And this understanding made the incarnation impossible in their minds. For what would be involved in the in if the incarnation were true according to Greek philosophy? God would have to link up with evil. He would have to become bad. And since that's impossible for God to remain God, they could not believe in the incarnation. So what the Greeks believed, which quite frankly is the basis of most cults today, is that God did not become a man, but man must become God. And in that way, they slip the sinful lifestyle of humanity. And then the third thing, that had to be believed, which they couldn't, was how can a holy God save sinners? Later on in the chapter, Mary says in verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And this is what the birth of Jesus was about, of course, salvation. But how is this possible? How can a holy God save sinners? This was the problem fixed many years later upon Jesus when they brought to him the woman who had been taken in adultery. And as the adulterous woman was thrown down before him, they claimed what she had done and they had witnesses. And they said that Moses in his law had commanded that such a person should be stoned to death. What would Jesus say? Should they stone her thus fulfilling the law of Moses? Or should they be merciful and let her go? You see, these men were blind to the fact that they were just as much a sinner as she was. But though they were blind to their own sin, they had nevertheless, with fiendish wisdom, hit upon a real problem. God is just. His law rightly demands punishment for sin. The woman was a sinner. She must be punished for her sin. Of course, Jesus wanted to be merciful, don't we all? But the law must be upheld. How can anyone, and especially God, be merciful and not uphold the law? Of course, 
as the gospel unfolds, we find that the answer is in the atonement. The reality that God in his omnipotent love for sinners would come take on the form of man and bear the punishment of sin for her and bear the punishment of sin for all humanity. But at the beginning, this was not clear. And there was confusion. Shortly after this, when Mary's pregnancy became known, her fiance Joseph preparing to break off the engagement, the angel appeared to him, explaining the situation and announced that the child to be born was to be given his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. But how? How could he do it? And how could such a great impossibility become possible? And then the fourth impossibility, how can people's hearts be changed? The final impossibility is that salvation requires a change of people's hearts. And the hearts of men and women are hard. It's the one thing for God to provide a way of salvation however he chooses. But it's another thing to see the hearts of people being changed. And you see, to realize what is going on. And I'm sure you've experienced this when I've sat with people and tried to explain the gospel and all you get back is a blank stare or someone who has gotten off track in their lives and you're trying to to bring them back on, but they're so stubborn and so set in their own ways because their hearts are hard. Mary would have known the Psalms and she probably knew Psalm 14 verses two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So if the heart is as hard as the Bible declares it to be, then how can we hope that anyone can be saved? So that naturally brings us to the point of the God of the impossible, the God of the impossible. Listen again to the angel as he speaks these words to Mary in Luke 1.37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing, nothing at all. Jesus, later on in his ministry, was confronted by a rich young ruler. You're probably very familiar with the story. He was very interested in Jesus and what he had to offer. And he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? And I'm sure after some conversation and Jesus seeing that what was really important to this young man was his riches. And and why, why were these riches in the way? Can rich people be saved? Of course. But it was clear with this young man that his riches were too important to him. And when Jesus came to him and said, look, give away everything you have to the poor and then come follow me. And the young man couldn't do it. And he turned and he walked away. Therefore, Jesus made this statement when he walked away. He said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples are perceptive here. 
And knowing and understanding human nature, they know it's not only the rich that struggle here, all struggle. So in amazement, they say to Jesus, well, who can be saved? And Jesus replies, echoing the very words that Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 18, 27. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Why? Because God is not a man that he should be bound by our human constraints. This is why in Christianity, we stress in the final analysis that we're not dealing with psychology or sociology. We're not trying to appease culture. We're not trying to take the gospel and make it fit to culture when the culture needs to be fit with the gospel. And that's why we only will ever preach this book. Because it is the Spirit of God who works through His Word to convict sinners. It's supernatural. This is why some get into trouble by preaching this prosperity gospel. Listen, God loves you. He wants you to be rich. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you all things because God is love. Well, try preaching that to the rich young ruler who was told to get rid of everything. You see, God is working in every one of us to his glory. And the life and the plan that he puts us through is designed for his glory. And this is what he's trying to do. We are dealing with God here. In other words, we do not live in a closed universe where the cosmos is all there is, as Carl Sagan used to teach. But in a universe in which the infinite God is the ultimate and determinate reality. A virgin birth? Why not? God is not bound by the laws of human conception. God made the laws. He can operate within them or outside of them. With God, all things are possible. An incarnation? Of course. God made man in his image originally. He can take man to himself through the birth of Jesus, and he need not be contaminated with evil as the Greek philosophies would say. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the blood that coursed through his veins was divine holy blood and that's what was shed for you and me. The salvation of the race, the atonement is God's answer to seemingly insurmountable problem. And what about man's hard heart? Well, God can change the heart. He can change Hearts as easily as he can change the wind. In fact, he can make over a heart, which is exactly what he told Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord. Therefore, it is supernatural. So we begin to realize then, all things are possible. Now, it would be wrong application here if this text to believe that you and I are entitled to a virgin birth or an incarnation. By definitions, these are one-of-a-kind events. Jesus came once as a human. He's never coming that way again. But you and I need to be able to apply this text. We need to take these truths and apply them to our daily lives. So in what areas of your life can you apply this message to Mary? Can we believe 
things are possible? Can we believe God can transform and work in our lives? Can we believe that he can actually deal with a situation that we see no way through? Well, let me give you two ways that you can be absolutely sure that God will work. Number one, anything God has promised in his word is possible. More than that, it is certain for God does not cheat on his promises. He does not break his word. As Matthew Henry says, no word of God must be incredible to us as long as no work of God is impossible for him. Think of the simplest promises that we have in scripture. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The most simple promise, come to Christ and be saved. It's not rocket science. You don't have to go through all kinds of steps. You don't have to be a learned theologian. You simply come with childlike faith. God, I believe that your son died for me and paid my sins. I believe in him and you're saved. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And if you're here this morning struggling, who can forget Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. These are guaranteed promises to the one who turns himself over to Christ. I love what J.C. Ryle said about our text and about God's promises. He said, there is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned. The blood of Christ cleanseth from all sin. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. There is no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ who strengthens us. There is no trial too hard to be borne. The grace of God is sufficient for us. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's words never pass away and what he has promised he is able to perform. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. When God is for us, who can be against us? The mountain shall become the plain. The second area is God's plan for your life is possible. Even though it seems at times what God has asked you to do is not possible. You see, our problem here is that we usually confuse our plans with his plans. And when our plans fail, we lose confidence in God. We must learn that God's ways are not our ways and his ways are best. The Bible makes clear for us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, I recognize that God may have placed you in a very difficult situation. 
He will help you through it. He is with you in it. And there is a purpose on the other side of it. Now, I want to share a passage of scripture that is quite often read at funerals. But it is so powerful for you and I that find ourselves in life. Whether in good times or bad times. But it helps to give us an understanding of what God is doing in each of our lives. You see, the struggles we are going through when sifted through the word of God make clear the plan of God. And always when you sift your situation through the word of God, you will find God's plan. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now let me pause here for a second. We are jars of clay. You see, when a potter makes a jar of clay, he forms it so it can carry sweet wine or water. You and I as jars of clay have been formed to carry the sweet spirit to the world. We are made by him for his use. As scripture talks about, does the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? God is fashioning your life and mine in a very specific way to bring glory to him. And it says the power belongs to God and not to us. You see, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them to be to have fellowship with God and to bring glory to God. But when sin entered into the, into the reality, that relationship was severed. But after Christ's death on the cross and paying for our sins, when you and I come to him and accept that free gift, that we are now restored. Now our goal again is to lift him up and bring glory to him and to be made into his image. Verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The life you and I live as jars of clay bring glory to Almighty God in rich prosperity or in poverty, in sickness or in health. However he has guided and designed your life, that is the way you can bring the most glory to him. Does this sound like the prosperity gospel? The true gospel makes and fashions you and I into the image of Christ. And that is our goal. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak. Now this is taken from Psalm 116 verse 10 and really what it's saying is, even in trouble, I believe. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that 
as grace extends more and more people to more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So what you have to understand in this beautiful passage is that whatever is happening in your life will show the world you belong to Christ when you react in a surrendered life. So we do not lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, in the final analysis, how can any of us fail since the goal of our lives is to be made into the image of Christ? And Christ has promised to do it. Our lives are hidden in the Savior. And when he came to earth that Christmas, took on the form of a man and grew up and then went to that cross, it was so that you and I could be in his image. This is why Paul could write in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When it says for those, th- for those that love God, it means those who are committed to a life of surrender. That's really what that means. The longer you're a Christian, the more you're surrendered, the more you look like Jesus. That's the way it should be. And this is why Paul could write in Philippians 4, 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And why? Because he's making me into his image. And folks, that is the secret that Paul was talking about. The secret that Paul was clinging to was that his life was being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as remarkable a life as Paul lived, as remarkable a life as any of the disciples lived, do you understand that's exactly what he wants to do in your life? He wants to transform you into the image of his son so that the world may know that you serve the risen Savior. That is the key that he's trying to get through. And that is the basis of the Christmas story and what he is doing for each one of us. Now, my final point ties this together from the human standpoint. Are you a servant of the Lord? You see, you and I need to accept what God is doing with us. And I mean accept it willingly, not fighting it. 
You think back to Gabriel's announcement to the birth of Jesus to Mary. I told you that the last thing he said was, nothing is impossible with God. But here's Mary, this young teenage girl. She's told she's going to be pregnant. She's going to give birth to the Son of God. Now, the angel came to her husband, but we don't have a record of the angel coming to her friends. What are people going to think? Her reputation's going down the chute with a lot of people. She is being asked to take on something that probably in her eyes doesn't make a whole lot of sense at that point. Here's where the story really clings from a human standpoint. And this is where every one of us has to grasp this crazy reality. And it's Mary's response. Luke 1, 38. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm the servant of the Lord. God, whatever you want to do, do it. Whatever you choose to do with me, I'm your servant. Do it. I'm here for you. And wouldn't it be amazing if that was the response of every one of us this Christmas? You came and gave me your life. I'm your servant. You do with me whatever you want to do. When Mary submitted her life to God, a Savior was born. When you submit yourself to God, what is he going to do through you? His promises guarantee he will work through you to transform you into his image. Are you willing to let him have all of you this Christmas season? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning just amazed at your love. And I'm amazed at Mary's response. This young girl, she just opens willingly to you. And you use her in a mighty way. And years down the road, when you go back to glory and you send your Holy Spirit, she's indwelled again with the Spirit. And all of us who come to you, Lord, have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Lord, what are you doing this morning in the hearts and lives of each one of us? Are we willing to say, yes, my situation is difficult, my struggle is real, but God, you've allowed it. And through it, you can transform me into your image. And I'm just saying, yes, Lord, whatever you want to do. I'm yours. I pray, Lord, that you're working that in the hearts of many here. But I also realize there could be some here who have no relationship with you. They don't understand. And I pray that you would bring them to us, Lord, that we might explain to them through your word how they can be assured of salvation. This is Christmas, another Christmas. They come every year. 
but I pray that this one will be so different for all of us this morning. Be glorified in the lives of every one of us that Jesus might be praised. And we'll give you the praise and all God's people said, amen. God bless.